Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman. I'm a writer, consultant, and the creator and host of this podcast. For those of you just tuning in, I interview artists, entrepreneurs, and innovators who share slow stories and big ideas about living, working, and creating in our digital age. This episode begins with a story from multidisciplinary artist Caro, who shares musings on pace and a book that stays with her no matter what. Here's more from Caro. I'm Caro, a multidisciplinary craft artist working in the mediums of metals, embroidery, and lace. There's never been an epiphany for me, to slow down that is. I feel slowness to be a product of intention, care, and singular focus. I've forever been there. So there isn't a singular poem, book, or moment that precipitated a reversal of a worrying four-dimensional self. I didn't grow up with a TV, the internet was small and unimposing in the 90s, and I read constantly. I was wonderfully sheltered in a sense, slow from circumstance. But I have come to regard it as this most essential bulwark against the pace of modernity. It provides testimony to that which is palpable and tangible, the reason we ache for a languorous afternoon and a reveling night our desire to be suspended. I'm going to read from a section of The Sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut, which I would classify as my if you're trapped on a desert island and can only bring one book book. The planet Mercury sings like a crystal goblet. It sings all the time. There are creatures in the deep caves of Mercury. The song their planet sings is important to them, for the creatures are nourished by vibrations. They feed on mechanical energy. The creatures have only one sense, touch. They have weak powers of telepathy. The messages they are capable of transmitting and receiving are almost as monotonous as the Song of Mercury. They have only two possible messages. The first is an automatic response to the second, and the second is an automatic response to the first. The first is, here I am, here I am, here I am. The second is, so glad you are, so glad you are, so glad you are. Thank you so much again to Caro for sharing. Again, the book she mentioned is The Sirens of Titan by Kurt Vonnegut. And you can also learn more about Caro's work online at carolinerossoff.com. Now here's my conversation with Ross Gay. Hold joy in your hand means to honor any sadness in your heart, for the two are inextricable. This sentiment is one that many of us will recognize after a prolonged period of chaos and transformation. But for poet and author Ross Gay, studying these modes of being has metabolized into art that will surely stand the test of time. You may recognize Ross's words from the Book of Delights, a compendium of small delights noticed and recorded by Ross over the course of one year. Now, Ross is following up on these themes with Inciting Joy, a collection of essays that, quote, considers the joy we incite when we care for each other, especially during life's inevitable hardships. There is a liveliness to Ross's prose that makes it hard to turn away from the full spectrum of our humanity. From gardening to grief, Ross charts a loving investigation into what it means to connect in a world that challenges our time, attention, and hope. 
And as we collectively continue to question systems that prize productivity and efficiency, Inciting Joy makes a compelling case to slow down and reconnect with all of the things that make life joyful, even when it gets messy. And in this interview, Ross shared more about writing and re-encountering his life, the joys and lessons of aging, and the importance of change and curiosity. Even if you read just one sentence of his, one thing is immediately clear. Ross Gay is someone who expands your mind and your heart. I can't think of a better conversation to close out another tumultuous year. So without further delay, here's my conversation with Ross Gay, author of Inciting Joy. I'm someone who's been really cared for and is being really cared for. I like foraging. You know, I like gathering. I like getting together. I like dreaming with people. For some reason, just based off of reading your work, I imagine that you hum a lot while you're doing those kinds of things. Is that correct? <laughs> <laughs> or whistle? I love it. I think I probably sing. I think I probably sing. Nice. Well, I'm going to borrow a page from your book and ask you to tell me about something beautiful you discovered this morning. Yeah, I'm in my studio. I live in Bloomington, Indiana, and I'm uh, this morning checking on plants and stuff. And we planted these pawpaw trees. They're probably three years old and they're doing good. And one of them made fruit this year and enormous fruit. And I've just been kind of waiting to see when that fruit was going to fall because most of the pawpaw trees in Bloomington that I know of have pretty much gone through their thing. And this tree was just hanging on to these fruit. And it was a cluster of like five or six of them and kind of the biggest ones that I've seen. And this morning I went out there and sure enough, they were, they're ready kind of when they're on the ground. And so they were on the ground and that was a marvel because I'm about to leave town for like a week. And I was just like nervous that I was going to miss them. I'll talk about a slow story and held on for you. Such a slow story. Gardening <laughs> is a slow story, actually, yeah. Yeah, that's one thing about living in New York that bums me out a little bit, just having access to like private green space. I mean, I'm lucky to live right near Prospect Park, which I guess is its own sort of beauty. There's life in many different contexts all over the place, but it must be nice to have that privacy. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Kind of watching things very closely over a long period of time is pretty pretty special. You know, when I was reading both The Book of Delights and Inciting Joy, I could almost hear you speaking to me. And I feel like physical presence, physicality, attention, those are such big things that you talk about and experience. And I know you have a background in sports. Basically, there's just such a liveliness to what you do. And I wanted to know how joy or delight manifests for you physically. In other words, which of your five senses is awakened first? That's such a great question. I have not even come close to thinking about the kind of sensory experience of joy. I haven't even come close to it, in part because I think it's such a kind of every sense that is available to you maybe is involved in it. Maybe, maybe, or maybe that it's like subsensual or super sensual or something. It's such a great question. Can I just tease it a little bit? Try to think about it? Yeah. Partly, you know, like if I have a kind of definition of joy, it's something like the feeling, which I often describe as a kind of light or luminosity that comes from us when we help each other carry our sorrows. And so, you know, like it's a kind of radiance. The feeling is a kind of radiance, but it doesn't 
It's like the taste of the pawpaw might, I'm wondering, the taste of the pawpaw might incite the feeling, but the feeling, the deeper feeling is that how lucky am I to be in this circuit of care, which is manifested in this fruit that this tree has been so kind as to offer to me, which I guess is to say, you know, like, yeah, I don't even know. That's a great question. Maybe like the senses are a portal to something we can't really feel or name. Yeah. It's like a sixth sense for lack of a better word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It is like fun to say, even just to try it, like the joy sense, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, as you say in the books, that could be a good t-shirt slogan. Yeah, that's a t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. That is a t-shirt. Um, yeah, no, I know it's a hard one. It's something I'm constantly thinking about since so much of my experience and existence is informed by technology, millennial through and through. Yeah. Always curious to hear how people sort of react to that because you forget you actually can notice these senses as they're unfolding. And I feel like for me, joy in my experience has often been touted as something that's synonymous with loudness. I'm actually an intensely shy person. And so, you know, I wonder what you would say to people who are shy, but want to incite or experience joy in quieter ways? Well, I think, you know, my, my sense of joy is that it's a kind of understanding or falling into in a way, I kind of think of it as like a falling into sometimes the awareness of more connection than we could ever conceive of, which is to say that, you know, like the dance floor is an obvious kind of place where maybe joy could be kind of expressed or experienced. But it's also just as easy to me to imagine if you're imagining that there are all of these, to use a tech term for you, (laughs) if there was this kind of circuitry that is constant and way more sort of plugged in than we could ever imagine it, then in a way we're never alone. You know, I think it's a very common experience for people to feel that, to sort of fall into that feeling while, for instance, being in the woods by themselves with other people, but also in the woods, quote unquote, by themselves. And I think probably there's some understanding that there is this whole kind of holding mutual holding that's going on in, say, a forest or a place like that, that we often might say, I go there to be alone. But in fact, it's not going there to be alone at all. It's going there to be in a kind of presence that is almost beyond our capacity to recognize it. What about silence? Can silence be its own form of joy? I mean, I think, I mean, personally, like solitude and joy are not at all to me antithetical. I can often feel profound joy in solitude. And I think probably in part because the more I think, learn, practice, study, et cetera, the more I know my solitude is never, in a certain way, is never complete. Because even if I'm by myself, I'm bringing my folks with me in my body. You know, I'm bringing, and that's a lot of folks, actually. There's always a gathering inside of us. And sometimes I think what feels really delightful to me about being in some solitude is that you kind of get to reacquaint yourself with that gathering, that gathering that's inside of you, which sometimes I think can be very difficult to do if you're busy or in the midst of, you know, other kinds of gatherings. Do you write alone or how do you like to write with these themes in mind? Yeah. I mean, these days I kind of write wherever. And I think part of the thing with writing that Book of Delights, which is a book where I wrote an essay more or less every day for a year, is because I kind of had to get it done, I learned how to write wherever. And so now I can kind of write forever. So I might, you know, find myself writing on the train or the at the coffee shop. I love coffee shops to work mm-hmm. at. Apparently I like to work at coffee shops where I can be alone, but also be in the presence of people. And it's partly, I think, <laughs> 
I was just thinking this the other day. My partner and I were having a conversation about like the ways we like to drive from place to place. And I almost always will choose the place where I can see people, even though I like to be alone, you know, (laughs) but I kind of like to know that there are people. Right. Best of both. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Totally. And the coffee shop where I like going to a coffee shop where I'm going to run into people too. And I get to just hang around and, and bullshit. But I also like, say, if I want to work on something, I also like going to the coffee shop where I'm not going to run into anyone, but I'm glad to know that there are people to run into. Do you get distracted easily? I think I'm fairly, I'm both. I'm like fairly distractible and I'm very focused as well. But if a person comes around, you know, like if my buddy Dave walks into the coffee shop and I'm working on something, 99% of the time, unless I have like a deadline really on myself, I'm going to choose Dave. It's hard for me not to. It's kind of why I'm always late. If I'm walking someplace where I know people, I'm not going to be on time. Because I'm probably going to choose that, which is also to say that I don't think of that as distraction. I think of that as like the point of it. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. Yeah, distraction, inefficiency. I love it. And often we don't even realize or know they're distractions. It's just life happening, taking you in a different direction. It's just life, yeah. Just speaking to the broader culture of efficiency and productivity, having to unlearn all of those things. It's been kind of magical to get back to a place where I don't have to subscribe to any of that. Yeah. Yeah, it is powerful. And I think of like different places where it's more and less. You know, I live in Indiana and although I live in like a university town and that kind of imports a lot of certain values, I think. It's also the case that people here are slower. There's just a generally a sort of a slower mode of life than, you know, when I was living on the East Coast in Philly or near New York or whatever, you know, where the greatest <laughs> virtue, the indication that you are like actually a person is that you're busy, you know. It's like the best thing about you is that you're busy. Here, it's not so much that way. So it's kind of like, it's not actually that difficult to run into someone at the supermarket and then just end up sitting around talking with them for an hour. I mean, I could do it right now. I'm glad that we're having this conversation, but (laughs) but I could go over there right now and probably like run into someone and have at least like a 10 minute conversation. (laughs) So would you say you're a patient person? I'm both, you know, there's times that I'm very patient, probably less patient with myself. You know, I can be impatient with the people I love the most. My dear mother. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that's universal. That's really universal, you know. But generally, I think you'd say impatience is not one of my top afflictions. That's a gift. Yeah. I mean, my mom was, is, was impatient. <laughs> you know, partly it's like I, I kind of, I think I read it in the delights, you know, that my mom, when I just even begin to describe it. My mom, she needed to get somewhere on time. And like, if we weren't as quick as she was, her like rattling her keys. (laughs) The subtle hurry up. (laughs) Man, it's still in there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Those little things, they stay with you. And all of those details you rendered really beautifully in both books. And I think as we talk about connection and patience, would you be open to reading from Inciting Joy? Yeah. So this is an essay called Free Fruit for All. It's an essay about this community orchard. It's called the Bloomington Community Orchard that I've been involved with from the beginning. And just like one of the most important projects I've ever been a part of, in part because it was a a bunch of people gathering together around an idea that we all believed in. People who didn't know each other gathering together around this idea. And the idea is more or less in the phrase free fruit for all, this kind of ethic of sharing, basically. 
And in the course of, you know, nine months or whatever, we made an orchard. But among the things that's interesting about it is that it was a profoundly inefficient <laughs> experience. And I write about that and I sort of think about that. Part of what's so moving to me about the project is that we weren't only gathering around this idea, we were gathering around this sort of practical thing that we were going to put trees in the ground. And we just don't actually know what happens after that. We will care for the trees, but, you know, everything changes, including the fact that, you know, we might not be here to see the trees fruiting, or we might really not be here. We might be gone. You know, as I talk about in the essay, some people who were deeply involved in the project have since died. And this idea of like, planting something that might feed someone in the future who you do not know and you could not have imagined was really moving to me. But it also sort of tussled with this other thing about this other nervousness, which is about leaving stuff for the future that maybe we don't want to leave for the future. This kind of idea of like, you know, a certain kind of ambition that I think is familiar to a lot of people doing, you know, grand things. In the essay, I'm sort of tussling with myself. And it's a funny thing to realize or to contend with this investment or belief in the future because I've been almost ethically disinclined from making plans for the future, or at least I have fancied myself so. I mean, yeah, right. I eat a lot of greens and exercise and try to remember to floss. I wash down my vitamins, D3 and K2, C, B12, with a quart glass jar of water and a pinch of salt, lemon, and magnesium, along with my kettlebells and push-ups and jump rope every single day. We could start there. We might say that constitutes planning for the future. Though it's also true, those plans extend only to the hopefully forestalled end of my life. So maybe what I resist or even hate, and the hatred is probably indication that a little bit I want it too, is the imposition of oneself into the future beyond one's lifetime. The fantasy of immortality the pursuit of which I can't help but think of as the outsourcing or offloading of death, your disprivilege, your destitution, or my life everlasting. I even gave a talk about this. There's a little essay somewhere. It's called, pretty good title, Body, Musics, and the Empire of Time. And I suggest that maybe it's not such a good idea for us to want to take up space into the future, to impose our art, our lives, our anything, through time. Maybe we shouldn't. Maybe we should just do our work for the here and now. Well, I'm afraid we don't really have a choice in the matter, turns out. Bummer. What we do in the here and now exists already beneath your boot soles in the future. Look for me there. Look for me when you turn on your air conditioner. Look for me when the hurricane is coming. Look for me as this virus that used to live in the depths of the forest enters your body. Look for me when you're having an asthma attack. Look for me when the parched tree snaps into flame. Look for me as you run, taking only your skin with you. Look for me as you build your boat. Look for me in the wreckage. Or look for me in the orchard. It's a beautiful passage. I'm so grateful to hear it out loud. Oh, good. Thank you. Something that's just so interesting. I don't know if you know this, but I'm actually in the process of writing my first book. Oh, cool. Yeah. Just as I go through this process, I'm thinking about, or I'm trying not to think about rather the future, just so I can really commit to what's happening on the page in this moment. But have you had to wrestle with that tension, even as you gain more experience? It's interesting when you're writing about joy, obviously with the Book of Delights, it was a regimented practice, but do you think it's good to have distance from an experience before you write about it? Oh, 
Sometimes I think it is and sometimes it isn't because I do feel like sometimes the closeness of a thing can be its own kind of like wisdom or light. I think a kind of orthodox thing definitely among like writing teachers is to suggest that something that's very present, very current in our lives and imagination is not the thing to meditate on in part because the presumption is that it's distance and a certain particular kind of distance reflection that maybe makes us more able to sort of properly meditate on it. But I don't always agree with that. I think there's something kind of beautiful and useful to a kind of very current in the moment kind of meditation that in all likelihood for a lot of writers, most writers maybe, we go back to to sort of revisit and to revise, to re-see anyway. Not one way or another on that. So was it a big departure between writing Inciting Joy versus The Book of Delights? So you were mining a lot of the past. I mean, it was so exciting is actually the word. Like my relationship to writing these days, you know, when it's sort of clicking, I have no idea what's going to happen. I know I have a story to tell. I mean, maybe I do. Often I do. Often I'm sort of reflecting on something that happened. And it might be like, you know, my father's death or my buddy describing how I left or telling about this bike ride with my brother and his kid or something. But I never know what's going to happen, which is also to say that my process of writing is so clearly now one of discovery. And almost any time I know what I'm going to say, it will be an essay that's really uninteresting to me. But when I approach it very curious about what I will say, what I will discover, what will have had happened to me, if I think I did that right, what that happened to Something me. like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, you know, because I'm trying to anticipate how I'm going to recount and re-encounter from my life. You know, like part of why I love to go right is because it feels like the best show, you know, a show I'm very interested in. And I think it's a good spot to get to. I think it's hard to get to it sometimes, in part because I think in many ways we're encouraged to know what we think. All of these things that I think are overlapping with questions you're already raising, like we're encouraged to be efficient, we're encouraged to know, we're encouraged to display a kind of mastery, particularly when it's of ourselves. I just said this the other day, and I'll see if I, I still believe it. I'll say it again, and then eventually probably I'll change it. The two most interesting things about us is that we die and that we change. And writing that knows itself before it starts does not offer evidence of that change. Writing that's very interesting to me and that I'm trying to write and that I want to be reading is writing that is a kind of artifact of some kind of change, you know, is the evident artifact of some kind of change, which, like I said, it means going to the page each day or whatever you do means you're going to witness your change. And you have to be willing to meet it. You got to be willing to meet it. Yeah. You got to find it like, okay, or even exciting, but you got to be curious about it. I think it took me about 10 years to get to this point. Yeah. So when you're writing these separate essays, are they about topics? How's it going? It's funny. I pitched this book. So it's called Slow Stories and it's basically the next, I guess, iteration of this project. And I pitched it mostly as interviews, but the feedback I got was we want to hear more from you. And I've spent so much of my career interviewing creative professionals and I love it. I love asking questions. And now that I've turned the gaze on me, it's been interesting to explore slowing down time, all these things that we're talking about through my own experiences that maybe aren't so apparent to people when they meet me or Google me. So I think I would describe the experience so far. I was just working on an essay before this about secrets mm -hmm. and how they're so sacred in our culture of oversharing. But instead mm -hmm. of writing sacred, I accidentally wrote scared. 
Oh, good. And I thought yeah. that was so telling, but yeah. that's a very long-winded answer. So it's going and it's yeah. humbling, but it's hard. Yeah. yeah, great answer. So here's a here's a funny story, which is that I the first book I sold is this book called This Black Earth. And it was a sort of a, a proposal about my relationship to the land. But basically it was going to be more like I was going to go and I did interview farmers, black farmers, and I was going to do like kind of historical stuff and all this kind of stuff. And I wrote this proposal and I had, you know, the whole thing that you probably did. And it has been pretty much impossible for me to write. That was 2016 that I sold that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the meantime, it was funny because then I sort of actually on the day more or less that I sold the proposal, I started writing the Book of Delights. And that was a book I had no idea what it was. I was just like, all right, I just want to write these essays every day. We'll see, which was really captivating to me. And then there's this other book called Inciting Joy. And basically, I kind of had the book almost put together, not entirely, but like a kind of draft of it that I offered them. And that was a way that I could deal with, but I, which is to say basically that I think it's difficult when there's a kind of anticipation for what it might be from an outside or inside. And I've just sort of learned that about myself in the last, I guess, seven years that it's challenging for me when I have a, a little bit of a contract or maybe a proper contract with someone. And in part of that contract is like, here's what you're supposed to do. Even if that's as broad as possible, like no one has been telling me, don't do this, don't do that. But I just am like... Yeah. I mean, all of that resonates really deeply. And I think it's because this is my first, so it's new. I just want to get it right, whatever that right looks like. I think I'm trying to figure out or renegotiate what that means. But no one's putting the pressure on except me, which I think is the case for most things. Actually, on the subject of learning and changing, would you be open to reading another excerpt from Inciting yeah. Joy? Yeah, totally. This essay is called Dispatch from the Ruins, the 11th Incitement. And it's an essay about teaching or about class, about school, actually. It's about school. The initial point of departure is that I am telling this story about driving from Vermont, where we had hung out for like a week, back to Indiana. And I had gotten stuck behind all these Amazon trucks. And so I start meditating on these Amazon trucks, and then remembering that I was in a faculty meeting once where, you know, some dean or someone came in and referred to the students as units, <laughs> which, you know, went into my ear like a fucking dagger. <laughs> I remembered it. But anyway, so then the essay is sort of like trying to think about basically what's useful about school and what's not useful about school. And the not useful part is that school is often a place of kind of coercion and conformity and, you know, a certain kind of, I would call it brutality, actually. And at the same time, there are glimmers in school always that are of like profound tenderness and curiosity and openness and like, you know, proper sort of loving exchange. Also, this essay is like deeply indebted to this whole kind of almost cosmos of thought around this work called The Undercommons by Fred Moten and Stefano Harney. It's a beautiful book. And they're, you know, writers, philosophers, I guess, stuff like that. But yeah, I just want to say that this book is in conversation with the conversations around that book. At this point in the essay, I'm sort of describing offering some possible exercises that I do in my classes and, you know, different ways that I've sort of seen it maybe being different. And these days, I like to conclude the exercise with three final requirements. First, make it so it matters to you. Because again, if we are practicing obedience or duty, it is to a piece. It is to one's questions. Two, don't do it, quote, right. Because again, good art isn't, 
quote, right. And three, make it beautiful because again and again and again. I try my hardest not to codify the exercises. I try to let them evolve, asking for input, suggesting additions or changes. Often they emerge from the conversations and work and questions that happen in the class. Not infrequently, the way someone approaches an exercise becomes the form we all try next. Sometimes someone else suggests an exercise or we come up with one as a group. Always with the caveat that when it makes sense, we try to listen to our piece more than the exercise. Notice the pronoun. I do the exercises too. But how do you evaluate a collaborative impossible movie? You might be wondering. How do you evaluate a 60 second puppet opera or a weird ass performance with silence and felt and unhurt flowers or an atlas of tears or a lyric biography gift? Maybe you don't, unless being wonderstruck, being flummoxed with delight and calling attention to what was unpredictably beautiful constitutes evaluation. Unless thorough, loving observation and inquiry constitutes evaluation. And I don't think it does. And for the makers whose work is being observed, they too are observing their work. It's we wondering together, taking note of what they found beautiful or true, noting what they want to keep trying or working on, and noting what they can let go. A lot of students, certainly students in the arts, are used to defending their work with the premise, again, that it needs fixing, just like they do, poking holes, then offering patches and spackle. But the actions born of that premise, we don't want to. In this school, we want to make work, and we want to wonder about it. We want to note the wonders of what we make, and we want to wonder about them. What is this thing? How is it working? What is it showing us? How do we listen to and learn from it? How does this thing show us how we might try to make a next thing? Wondering together again and again and again like this, an endeavor of unfixing, of dismastery, of community-supported bewilderment is the practice, which means as well that the practice of inquiry and unfixing is a practice of changing. I'm going through changes, Charles Bradley sings, covering Black Sabbath. Changing, changing, Adeseli Skirmais writes, covering Ovid. And if the work is evidence of and witness to those changes, it likewise witnesses a reader's changes or unfixes us. Our work, born of this practice of unfixing, reminds us that we are forever unfinished, or as Harney and Moton put it, all incomplete, all of us, and perfectly so. What changes are you going through right now? Well, every day I'm getting older. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I feel like that's a good one. You know, I'm uh, in my relationships. I feel like I'm just sort of steadily learning how to try to ask questions, trying to unknow the people that I love most and think I know the best. You know, I talk in the book a little bit about <laughs> being in couples therapy with my partner and the sort of often terrifying experience of being like, oh, I actually don't know this thing about you. I have to ask it. Mm. So many of my predetermined understandings of you, and not only you, so many of the people in my life are probably wrong. Or changing. changing. They're not fixed. That's right. That's right. They're changing. So I feel like that is something that in my life is ongoing. It's changing. I'm also, you simply were just writing about, reading about teaching. 
I feel like my teaching is always changing too. You know, like that's a, it's a big part of my life. And I think about it a lot. You know, I'm teaching this class, a grad class this semester. And I just feel like where I started teaching, you know, not quite, well, no, yeah, 20 years ago, I was perfectly awful at it. I mean, I think I was a quote unquote good enough teacher. Like I did my job, but I was sort of properly hierarchical, properly like, you know, dominant and all that stuff. (laughs) And in this class, I was just noticing that this kind of, again, mutually supported bewilderment was really happening yesterday. Like there were all of these things at the end of class. I realized like, oh, this next thing that we're going to do, it is actually going to determine, you know, we're going to try to write something for publication together. But we got to some of the depth of the conversation that we needed to not because of anything I did, but because of someone else saying, hey, could we just all go around and read the thing that we wrote? Which I wasn't thinking I was going to do. I think that wasn't, you know, not like I ever really have a plan, but I think that wasn't in the mix. And I was just like, oh yeah, okay. So this person just guided us, you know, in this class that ostensibly I'm the teacher of record for. And I feel like I could mention five instances of that in yesterday's class. And I'm just starting to notice like, okay, the older you get, I think the more you're changing into this properly, at times, collaborative fella. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you talked about age and being a grown-up essentially so beautifully with Catherine May. And I wanted to actually ask about this because I thought it was so interesting. And like I mentioned, I'm 29 at the moment, millennial, spent the past decade really growing up and growing into myself and my needs. In my case, a lot of that was happening because I was so distracted by the demands of life and performance and all of these things. But I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about age and perspective and how that contributes to our understanding or our misunderstanding of joy. Yeah, you know, I was just talking to a guy very briefly, one of my dearest friend's fathers, who has Parkinson's, it's pronounced. And I was sort of thinking afterward, oh, that part of what, and I could also say I had a cousin, uh, my dad's first cousin who died a couple of weeks ago, who had MS for 40 years. But these are like examples of people whose bodies, in a way of their own accord, the boundaries of their bodies start to dissipate, like sort of, you know, explicitly. If you have Parkinson's, your body's moving in a way that you're not in control of. Or MS, your body maybe isn't moving in a way that you're not in control of. So there's some kind of like, I was just thinking this, looking, you know, talking with my friend's dad and thinking, oh, there's a way that the notion that we are separable from each other, you know, the older we get, which is also like young people too, very young, the older we get or the ways that our bodies change as we age, that boundary seems to get more flimsy, which all the many things, like, of course, if you're fighting that, then that could be horrible and terrifying. And I'm sure maybe if you're trying your damnedest not to fight it, it could be all those things too. And heartbreaking, of course. But at the same time, that's a thing that I'm sort of noticing, like as I get older, you know, like when I was 30 years old, I was just like ready to fight all the time. I mean, I was just on fire in a certain kind of way. When I say I was on fire, I mean, my brain was just a fucking mess. You know, I was just really troubled. And part of the troubledness was, I have to think, wanting to sort of, or trying to imagine myself as like this really discreet, unmovable thing, you know, and having the illusion of it too, you know, like all of the sort of ways that that might factor in, like being a dude or being like big or being like blah, 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 all these different things. And while at that time, I was just falling apart. There is some kind of weird liminal space, I feel like. 
because I've been going through my own anxieties. It's been really pronounced this year. I don't know mm. if it's like we've been subliminally messaged to that by the time you're 30, something's going to happen. I'm sure it's not as generalized as that. Yeah, sorry to cut you off, but I, no, I get no, that. No. I wonder about it too. Like that age, is there something in, in this culture that, you know, that you can imagine at different times, it would have been this kind of thing you would have cracked up in a certain kind of way when you were 19 or something. I do know that, or I think that part of my trouble at that time was that I was resisting this thing that I was able to see in my friend's father, which is that, oh, the boundaries between him and everything else are starting to fade away. He's kind of becoming everything else, which feels like a profound gift of aging, if we're able to be with it, I guess. What a gift to know that I'm as close to becoming a part of the soil, in all likelihood, being taken up into a tree, <laughs> that there's that kind of joining in my future. You know, that this thing that I've spent my whole life sort of cultivating and curating and boundaring up and defending and being ready to fucking kill over. As it gets older, it becomes less and less that and more and more everything else. It's hard to actually describe what I'm saying, but it is part of getting older for me feels like that softening. Probably a really big departure from how you thought about almost slowing down at 19 versus now. And what that means is we kind of inch closer to the inevitable slowness. Yes, 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 yes. Even like when we talk about these essays, but say the school essay, so much of that is about distinguishing yourself, separating yourself from the crowd, distinguishing yourself. You know, we have a million sort of encouragements to do that throughout our lives, to be a sort of distinct, coherent, unmovable often little thing, a little critter, you know, and except not a little critter, like a force to like, <laughs> and when you're a force like that, then you get to kick the shit out of the day or however we say it, you know, now. Like, and that is one, not true, but two, it's a kind of horrible thing to have to maintain that kind of rigidity or that kind of belief. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. And I don't think it leaves much room for the change. There's just no room to change. There's no energy. That's it. That's it. Yeah. It's kind of like being right does not, again, like you said, it does not permit for change. Being wrong permits for change. You know? <laughs> and by wrong, I don't even mean wrong. I mean, just like being one thing and then knowing that you're going to be something else. That you do not have to be a single coherent thing that will travel through time and space never to be shaken off track or off path. That you will, in fact, again and again and again and again and again, and hopefully more than that, be blown around. Again, it's just that willingness to meet that moment. It's inevitable, whether you're planning for it or expecting it. Might as well embrace it. I know it. I know it. I know it. I want to have you read one more passage from Grief Suite. But before you do, I actually have a question about questions. Going back to what you were saying about unknowing the people in your life or really engaging with them on that intimate level. You know, how do you hope people do that with you? Is there a question that you want people to start asking more often, whether it's in the context of delight, joy, sorrow, connection? What comes to mind? You know, I think I'm just really curious. Like, I don't know that I have a predetermined desire or hope even for the book. But I have tremendous curiosity about it and for it. One of the things that I'm really curious about is that there's a kind of looking that I feel like I'm doing in this book, which, again, it comes from other people. Like, I'm deeply indebted to the writer, Sadia Hartman, her book, Wayward Lives, Beautiful Experiments. And I'm 
deeply indebted to, you know, Martin, Moten and Harney, like I mentioned, but also like this woman, Anna Singh, who wrote a book called Mushroom at the End of the World, all of which are kind of like really studying hard these things that maybe are understudied, looking very closely at things that we often sort of just overlook and seeing where in those things might be these sites of, say, joy, you know, or, the, or at least these sites where the practices and structures of joy are sort of built in or available to us. I'm very curious to, because I know it's going to happen if the Book of Delights is any evidence, you know, people will tell me things that delight them. And I suspect that I'll hear of people being like, oh yeah, like you said, pick up basketball and skateboarding were these places where all of these structures built in that seem to sort of make possible this kind of mutual care, these sites of mutual care and, you know, troubling the property and blah, blah, blah. I suspect someone's going to be like, but you didn't talk about X, Y, and Z. I can't wait to learn these other places where people are like, I think it's happening here too. You know, I think it's happening there too. I wondered how you kind of discerned which spaces to focus on because there's so much you could work with here. So much, yeah. So I think one of the big points as you read this next passage that I just want to make sure listeners know is that point that you kind of drive home again and again is that joy is dependent almost on sorrow or the two can coexist. You know, they're not these isolated experiences. And more to the point that joy does not exist absent sorrow. That's something else, yeah. Absolutely. You know, in your essay, Grief Suite, it was filled with both of those things everywhere all at once and will leave people feeling nourished. Yeah. So this is an essay about many things. Ultimately, it's an essay about grief that moves around things like masculinity and family and football. (laughs) I played football in college. So to that end, I would like to offer a working definition of grief which in all likelihood I've cribbed from someone else, and to whom, wherever you are, I offer a hearty thanks. Grief is the metabolization of change. Perhaps it's for this reason that the bodies of the grieving so often actually transform in the process of grieving. Losing or gaining weight, suddenly wrinkling or taking on a tremor, water running from the eyes, hair going gray or white, memory different, dying. It is an emotional and bodily process that calls to question the ridiculous notion that ever the two are not one. This alert to the body and mind being one and the same, which is also called the heart, is one of the wisdoms the griever offers us, though it is ancillary to, or a subsidiary of, but perhaps is the first wisdom of grief, the one they bring back to us like fire, like the tablets. Everything is connected. The griever knows or comes to know again and again that it's not only my beloved friend, grandchild, dog, lover, tree, sibling, auntie, teacher, parent, relationship, belief, home, glacier, species that has changed or gone. Because when that one thing changed, everything changed. Light through the trees in October now different. The sound of the playground, making love pushing the cart through the aisles of the store, dreams, the Eagles game on Sunday, holidays, a walk by the river, celebration, changing the sheets, taking a nap, cooking a meal, reading a book, the future, the past, all of it changed. That is what the griever is metabolizing, which metabolizing how everything has changed is not, how could it be, obedient to a clock or calendar nor a mandate to move on or snap out of it or get over it or pull oneself together. 
It seems to me that grief is not gotten over, it is gotten into. And the griever teaches us, or reminds us, there is no pulling it together. There are only degrees or expressions of falling apart. Because grieving, alert to connection, luminous with it, is never only one person's experience. In fact, I think it is the case that grieving, or the griever, consciously or not, connects us to all of grief and to all grievers, and which is perhaps why there are some traditions in which the griever is held in constant vigil for a long time. Those traditions understand the griever is entering the oceanic sorrow, is drifting into it. And those traditions know, connected as we are, we are obligated to keep an eye on each other as the waters of grief close behind us, which serves little purpose for, or maybe more to the point, is a logjam or a barricade, or maybe even more to the point, a threat to a culture, a country, a net of stories, a way that has canonized the story of the rugged individual, the self-made, the need-nothing, bootstrapping, solitary conqueror dude, a culture that will do anything to preserve that story, which conveniently obscures the systemic, patently false though it is, the need-nothing, a figment of the nightmare imagination. Because, among other things, you know, get back to work. But just as important to the prohibition on grief, I suspect, no, no, I believe, is the understanding that what the grievers bring back to us, in addition to the ways their wet faces carry the light, is the fact that if we become likewise infected or subsumed, which can happen at any moment, indeed it ought to, right now, right now, right now, right now, terrifying though it is, everything will change and for good. That was my conversation with Ross Gay, author of Inciting Joy. You can purchase Inciting Joy and the Book of Delights anywhere books are sold, though we recommend supporting local and independent bookstores if you can. And you can learn more about Ross's work online at rossgay.net. Stay tuned as we'll be sharing highlights from this episode on our own channels at Slow Stories Official on Instagram, along with my own Instagram at Rachel Schwartzman, and more. You've been listening to Slow Stories. Thank you so much for tuning in this year. Have a wonderful holiday season, and we'll see you in 2023.